0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware, Go to walmart.com slash trending. That's walmart.com slash trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart. New York City, 1938. In a high-rise art deco apartment... America's most intrepid archaeologist is peering at a mysterious stone tablet found in the mountains north of Ankara. Sandstone, he murmurs. Christian symbol. Early Latin text. Mid-12th century, I should think. And then, almost in disbelief, he begins to translate the inscription. Who drinks the water I shall give him, says the Lord, will have a spring inside him welling up for eternal life. Let them bring me to your holy mountain in the place where you dwell. Across the desert and through the mountain, to the canyon of the crescent moon, to the temple where the cup that holds the blood of Jesus Christ resides forever. The Holy Grail, Dr. Jones, says his host. The chalice used by Christ during the Last Supper. The cup that caught his blood at the crucifixion and was entrusted to Joseph of Arimathea. And so Tom Holland begins our hero's thrilling hunt for the Holy Grail in the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade.
1: Now, you love the Holy Grail, Tom, don't you? I do love the Holy Grail. Um, I love that film. It was my favourite. I know that your favourite is um, the one of the first three Indiana Jones (laughs) films we're not covering, The Temple of Doom. But I, so Last Crusade was definitely my favourite. And I think the reason for that is that I was obsessed by the Holy Grail when I was a child. I had, I read endlessly about it, um, so much so that actually, when I watched um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, yeah, which for those of you who maybe haven't seen it, is a comedy mocking the Arthurian legends, I was much more offended by that than I was by Life of Brian thought the life of brian was great but i was very very offended i don't actually find monty python and the, and the holy grail very funny no i didn't think it was funny at all i was so as i say very upset by it but i think that of course i now understand that it comes from a position actually from a position of enormous learning yeah who was it was it terry no it was um
0: terry jones who's a medieval great medieval uh, enthusiast
1: great medieval scholar and um full of basically the more you know about the kind of the medieval tradition that gave birth to the holy grail the funnier Monty Python, the Holy Grail becomes. And I think that as with the Ark of the Covenant, which we talked about in our previous episode, so with the Holy Grail, the holiness kind of is the point because Monty Python are mocking something that is actually rather sacred to them, certainly to to Terry Jones. I mean, you know, you, you can only blaspheme something that you believe in. Yeah, And I think that uh, the same is obviously true of the plot of um, The Last Crusade, that if the Holy Grail isn't holy then the plot doesn't work.
0: Well, it's basically, in The Last Crusade, it is basically the Ark of the Covenant all over again. It's a MacGuffin that people seek, but you know, you kind of know what's coming, that it will destroy you, don't you? I mean, it's they basically reuse the same device. But there's also, uh, are you a big fan of the series? De- so uh, our overseas listeners won't know what this is, but this is for our British listeners, the TV series Detectorists, Tom. You're a fan of Detectorists? I love the
1: Detectorists, yeah.
0: So it's, uh, for our overseas listeners, it's, two, um, it's set in East Anglia, isn't it? In, is it in it's it in Suffolk. Suffolk, Suffolk. It's set in Suffolk around, um, I think, around Sutton Hoo. And it's two people with metal detectors who go searching for buried
1: treasure. I think last week I did my road trip across England, and I, I saw the field that I think inspired a lot of those episodes near Rendlesham, where metal detectors discovered a kind of lost palace. But anyway, yes, but the Holy Grail appears in, in, in
0: that. Yeah, there's a lovely episode where the central device of it is whether or not they have discovered this cup, which actually could have enormous cosmic significance. <laughs> yeah. And that idea, so more than almost any other artefact in history, I would say, the Holy Grail carries this extraordinary charge, doesn't it? I mean, it's fascinated people for centuries. But unlike the Ark of the Covenant, so the Ark of the Covenant is biblically
1: attested the Holy Grail is not, am I right? It doesn't appear in the Bible at all? Well, the Holy, the Holy Grail is, I think, it's a much more mysterious object because the question of where it comes from and what it is is something that, I mean, it's it's provided fuel for popular entertainment. We've talked about some of those. But also for in, in the 20th century, it helps to inspire what is probably the single most influential poem written in English of the 20th century, namely The Wasteland. So yeah, T.S. Eliot. So T.S. Eliot in his notes to The Wasteland is is open about this, says that he's inspired by a book called From Ritual to Romance by a very great medievalist called Jesse Weston. Yeah. Um, and Jesse Weston wrote about the Grail that no theory of the origin of the story can be considered really and permanently satisfactory unless it can offer an explanation of the story as a whole and of the varying forms assumed by the Grail why it should be at one time a food-providing object of unexplained form at another a dish, at one moment the receptacle of streams of blood from a lance, at another the cup of the last supper, here something wrought of no material substance, there a stone, and yet everywhere and always possess the same essential significance, in each and every form be rightly described as the grail. And so this is published in 1920. And the answer that Jessie Weston gives to her own question is basically that the grail is the survival into Christian times of pagan fertility rites. And she talks about there being a wasteland that surrounds the castle of the Fisher King, this mysterious figure who is who guards the grail. And she sees this idea of a wasteland that then you have to ask the right question of the Fisher King and then it will, bring, it will heal the wound that he's been given and bring him back to life and all the land with him. And she sees this as being um, proof for the origin of the Grail story and rituals of death and rebirth. And there's a sexual
0: element to this too, right? That The cup is female kind of sexuality and the, and the spear. So there's the idea of this sort of this lance piercing the side of christ their blood pour and the spear is she's argued that the spear was basically male sexuality
1: right yes and the cup is 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 female yeah and so this is very exciting for t.s Eliot, who's looking for some way of kind of coordinating his sense of post-war europe as a wasteland and so he draws on it very kind of openly and there there are actually there's kind of there are two couple of illusions in the wasteland to this mysterious figure the, the fisher king who guards the grail um so there's Brilliant passage. One of my favorite passages from The Wasteland. A rat crept softly through the vegetation, dragging its slimy belly on the bank while I was fishing in the dull canal on a winter evening round behind the gas house. It's very T.S. Eliot, the gas <laughs> house detail, <isn't laughs> Yeah, it? very, very T.S. Eliot. So, Dominic. Yes. How true is this theory? How likely is it that the grail was the cup? <laughs> <laughs> that held the blood of christ or that it was a pe- you know derives from pagan fertility rituals or where did it come from what is it all that stuff that's what we're looking at today
0: very good well the so the grail doesn't appear in the bible right the grail does not there's, there's no cup um and the word grail so i i you forget that i did french at university so i know that the word grail it's kind of it's rare in in kind of 12th century french but not unknown is that right
1: that's right so you you learned this when you were doing your medieval french course of course
0: yeah <laughs> i absolutely didn't read your notes <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah so grail in as you say it's it's a kind of unusual word but not unknown and it seems to um refer to a kind of large serving platter that's large enough to to, to hold a salmon or a fish right um and it is you know it's it's a kind of utensil it's it's kind of you know it's a piece of crockery basically and it carries no particular magical or spiritual significance. Um, and the etymology, it seems to derive either from Greek, krata, which is uh, a kind of a shallow two-handled drinking cup, or brilliantly from the Latin word, gardalis, which was a kind of pot used to hold garum, the fermented fish guts that the Romans used, this equivalent of ketchup. So um, very exciting. So it basically, it has no sacral connotations, Dominic, in the 12th century. That's a first on the rest of history. But of course it does become sacral. I mean, it becomes, you know, it becomes holy. And so the question there, therefore is how does this process happen? And actually we can pinpoint very, very precisely when it happens. And it happens in the 1180s, the late 1180s. And the guy who makes the grail into something holy is a French writer called Chrétien de Troyes. So Troyes is a, a, a city on a town on the river Seine. Chrétien. Literally christian so the Christian from Tro- from Troyes and he 's the father really of the chivalric romance isn 't he, he christian is, and, and, and not only the chivalric romance, but there's a case for saying the entire tradition of the novel, so Dominic, what is French for novel uh, roman so derives from romance oh romance, yeah, yeah, and so this this Romanus originally was the word that was given to the language spoke, spoken by gallo Romans in the late Roman Empire, which goes on to become French so the key thing is is that Chrétien de Troyes is writing romance, and he's doing that in French, not in Latin. So therefore, it is kind of readily accessible to everybody, and not just to scholars. Yeah, and he is to Arthurian romance what Geoffrey of Monmouth, who we talked about in our episode on, on on King Arthur, is to the kind of historical traditions. I.e., he is the guy who takes this great corpus of Welsh Celtic traditions and converts it into a form that makes it readily accessible to people across the French speaking world. Yeah. Um, and although, as with Geoffrey of Monmouth, Geoffrey's Arthur is recognizably a medieval king. He's not a kind of, you know, early medieval king. He's, he's a king from the high middle ages. The same is true of, of Chrétien de Troyes' romances, that although they are set in the Arthurian past, they are actually a reflection of the world in which he is living, the life of the courts, the tournaments, the nightly codes, and perhaps also the specific understandings of, of religion at this period. So,
0: Tom, is there one text, one kind of romance from which we get the grail story with Chrétien de Troyes?
1: Yes, yeah, So Chrétien writes a number of, of, uh, famous romances, one of which Lancelot has a huge influence on the whole idea of Lancelot as the kind of the paradigmatic knight. But his most influential by Miles is one called Percival after the name of the hero, which also Chrétien himself in his introduction to it calls Le Conte de Graal, the, the story of the Grail. And he wrote that, as I said, in the 1180s. And this is the romance that introduces us to the Grail as something holy. Although in Chrétien's account it's not the grail it's a grail that is holy so it's kind of key distinction there it only becomes the holy grail over the next the the decades that follow so dominic the plot of percival and i'm sure you you must have read these you must have been into king Arthur. i was into
0: this but percival in my mind and i am hoping you're going to shed some light on this percival and galahad are very confused. And I think that's the feature rather than a bug. The other thing, Tom is I do like the opera Parsifal, the Wagner opera, which, which seems to go on. As my wife said, we've sat here for six hours. Nothing has happened. (laughs) Um, People are just singing constantly and moving incredibly slowly around the stage. The grail is there the whole time, but I don't understand what's going on. And Nothing is happening at all. So that's, I don't want to, I mean, I'm really selling it to the audience. Okay.
1: Okay. We'll, listen, Dominic, we will come to Galahad and we might touch on, on Percival and, and Wagner as well. So the, so the plot of, per, of Percival, I'll go into some detail because it's incredibly influential on the Grail. I mean, basically, w- without this story, we would not have the Holy Grail. Okay. I think. So it begins with this, this small boy, Percival, who is being brought up in a, a forest by his mother, and his mother has lost two sons. To, to They've both been knights. They've both been killed. Uh, her husband, Percival's father, has, has died of grief and of his wounds that he also has sustained from fighting. And so Percival's mother is desperate that Percival doesn't grow up to fulfill his kind of ancestral destiny, namely to become a knight. But inevitably having set this up, Percival does become a knight because he's wandering through the forest and he suddenly sees these incredible figures in all their armor coming through on horses. He has no idea what they are. He's completely dazzled. He he asks one of them, are you God? And the knights explain who they are, what they are. Percival wants to become a knight and he he goes with them without telling his mother. And yeah. he has various adventures. He has the whole kind of comedy of it is that he's he's somebody who's wholly ignorant of what's going on and so in in a sense it's it's a kind of story of how uh some you know a bumpkin becomes a, a a sophisticated chivalric figure yeah and he has to although he has a completely natural aptitude for fighting for um doing everything that a knight should in tournaments and so on he has to be instructed in what is expected of a knight and so he's aware of this and he he hunts out people who he think will be good tutors. And among the lessons that he's taught by his tutors is that a good knight should not jabber too much. He should not ask needless questions. He should know when to hold his tongue. Is that a hint from
0: you, Tom, to uh, to your co-presenter?
1: No, not at all. I mean, obviously that would make Percival a, a terrible podcaster if he just sat there <laughs> not asking questions or not being allowed to say anything. But as a knight, this is the lesson that he takes on board and this is very important. So he's coming on leaps and bounds as a knight. He's, you know, knocking rival knights out of their saddles and rescuing ladies and doing all the things that a knight errant should. And he's out and he reaches a river and there he meets two men, one of whom Dominic is fishing. And this man, who is the fisher king, it turns out, offers Percival lodging. And he says to Percival, ride up through the cleft in that rock. And when you come to the top, you'll see a castle in a valley ahead of you. This is where I live near the river and the woods. And Percival rides up, looks around, can't see the castle at all, no sign of it. And then suddenly it materializes. And so you have this sense of it that you he's passing into the dimension of something, of the weird, of the supernatural, of the strange. So he rides into the castle and there he discovers not the Fisher King, but the man who turns out to be in the, the, the father of the Fisher King, who is terribly wounded, can't get up off the couch that he's lying on. And he's in this great hall. There's a blazing fire. Chrétien tells us that 400 men could have sat round the fire and each would have been warmed by the flames. So it's a tremendous place, clearly a place charged with adventure. And immediately strange things start happening. So a magical sword is brought to Percival and he's told, this has been waiting for you. And it's kind of strapped onto him and it's the best sword he's ever seen. It's all very kind of Aragorn. He's chatting away to the, to the wounded king on his couch. And then I, I will describe what happens in Chrétien's own words. While they were talking, a boy from a chamber clutching a white lance by the middle of the shaft came out and passed between the fire and the lord and his guest. A drop of blood issued from the tip of the lance's shaft and right down to the boy's hand, this red drop ran. Now, Percival obviously is dying to know what is going on. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. I think Tom. <laughs> he remembers his 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 coaching, and so he he doesn't ask what's going on. Then two other boys appear, and they're holding candlesticks, and then comes a girl, very very beautiful girl, uh, beautifully dressed, and she, Christian says, is holding a grail. So not the grail, a grail. Right. And when she comes in holding this grail, this kind of brilliant light radiates the entire room so that all the candles lose their brightness. Um, And then after her comes another girl holding a silver trencher. And the grail, Cretien says, which went ahead was made of fine, pure gold, and in it were set precious stones of many kinds, the richest and most precious in the earth or the sea. Those in the grail surpassed all other jewels. And the grail then magically serves all the assembled guests. It kind of provides food for them. So right. it's a kind of mobile, <laughs> magical food dispenser. Right. And still, Percival doesn't ask what's going on. I mean, you think, come on, ask, yeah. ask the questions. What, what the hell is this all about? But he doesn't. And he goes to bed and he still hasn't asked what's going on. And he wakes up and the castle is completely empty. And it becomes apparent that his seeming lack of curiosity has been understood as a lack of compassion. Because he hasn't asked the wounded king, you know, how did you get wounded? He hasn't asked about the grail. And this gets bundled up with another piece of devastating news he's brought, namely that his mother has died of grief because he's gone away without telling her. Right. And he comes back to to, to Camelot uh, feeling a bit crestfallen. And he sits down at the round table. And as he does so, a loathsome damsel <laughs> appears. <laughs> I remember her from the stories. <laughs> yeah. and she denounces Percival in front of all the knights of the round table and King Arthur. And she says to Percival, but ladies will lose their husbands. Lands will be laid waste. Girls will be left in distress and orphaned, and many knights will die. And all these evils will happen because of you. Now, it's important to say this is not because of any supernatural connection between the Fisher King or his wounded father and their lands. It's because the wounded King cannot adequately defend his lands. That is why there will be all this suffering. So at this point, there is no supernatural connection between the idea of the wasteland and and the king. Okay, right. Just bear that in mind. Percival is so devastated by this that he basically, he loses all his faith in God. He just roams around kind of fighting and, and doing his stuff. And five years pass and he comes across, he's riding along in full armor and he comes across five knights, 10 ladies, they're walking barefoot, they're wearing hair shirts, they're in procession, and they say to her, to Percival, why are you in armour? Why are you riding around? Don't you know it's Good Friday, the day on which Christ suffered death? And Percival is, is ashamed by this, shocked by this, and he says that he will seek redemption. And he's guided by the, uh, the knights and the ladies to go and seek instruction from a nearby hermit who is conveniently located just around the corner. And even more amazingly, this hermit turns out to be Percival's uncle. What are the chances, Tom? absolutely stunning and this hermit percival's uncle tells percival the story of of the grail and he says um, you know that the grail is 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 holy this is where you get the idea that the of, of the grail being holy right and the hermit instructs percival in how to be a godly knight that he has to defend girls widows orphans um and percival we, we're told by cretia came to recognize that god received death and was crucified on the friday and at Easter, most worthily, Percival received communion. And presumably, this is setting him up to go back to the Grail Castle and ask the questions. Yeah, and put it right. That he should have asked, and everything will be all right. But at this point, Cretien breaks off, and it's the, the story is left mm-hmm. uncompleted.
0: That is an unbelievably disappointing way. It's a massive cliffhanger. Yeah, so we don't ever find out. I mean, I would say, Tom, you know exactly what I'm going to say, I imagine, which is that all that stuff with shafts, tips of things a comely maiden holding a cup that um, there's a very obvious uh, explanation for what's going on here. That it's all about fertility and actually that Jesse Weston stuff is not. <laughs> that's what you'd say. That is what I'd say. Well, I mean, it doesn't take any great, I don't have to, it doesn't take any penetrating insight for me to uh, to come up with that. I mean, that's surely blindingly
1: obvious. Before we come to that, the question of what th- this might all mean, let's just kind of finish off the the account of how the Grail legend came to emerge because Kretchenhausen, all Chretien's romances were massively popular and influential, but this was the most influential of the lot, I think precisely because it was left un- unfinished. And therefore, it was really, really tantalizing. And over the course of the decades that follow, basically five decades that follow, yeah, there are endless attempts to rewrite it. And so you have two particularly influential sequels. One of them is written by a guy called uh, Robert de-, de Boron. Okay. And he's writing not a romance, but he specifies a history of the grail. So his account is focused not on the romance of finding it, not the quest for the grail, but the grail itself. And he is the person who introduces Joseph of Arimathea, who is a biblical figure. Joseph of Arimathea is the person who takes Christ's body after the uh, crucifixion and buries it in the tomb. But there are kind of various uh, late gospels in which Joseph of Arimathea plays a kind of leading role. And Robert de Boron draws on these traditions. And in his account, we learn how the grail is the vessel in which Christ broke the bread at the Last Supper. Um, It was taken from the house uh, where the disciples had met by one of the Jews who then take Christ prisoner. Um, And this Jew gives it to Pilate, who in turn gives it to Joseph Arimathea. And Joseph then takes this cup to um, the crucifixion and he gathers the blood of Christ um, that's flowing from the wound. Where the Roman soldier has stabbed it with the spear um, and he gathers it in the in the grail. and he establishes this kind of lineage of people who guard the Grail. So the Fisher king is actually Joseph Arimathea's brother-in-law, a man called Bron. and so he's incredibly venerable. I mean he's lived for you know centuries and centuries and centuries. and he lives in the castle with with his companions who are called the company of the Grail. and in his history, Percival re- does return to the castle of the Fisher King and he does ask the right question. And Percival becomes the keeper of the grail and Bron departs from the world, having taught, in, in Robert de Boron's words, having taught Percival the sacred words that Joseph of Arimathea had taught him and which I cannot and must not tell you. So there you have this idea of the Holy Grail being the cup of Christ, guardians, uh, secrets all that kind of stuff yeah the second key text that is written as a sequel to to, to chrétien to trois is by a german writer called wolfram von eschenbach um and he, this is a very radical reworking of basically the french traditions and in it the fisher king is a man called anfortas and he's been wounded through his genitals so introducing a eunuch into uh into the story which will gladden the hearts of all rest is history listeners as punishment for an extramarital affair Yes. The lance is the spear that is carried, you know, in the procession is the spear with which the fisher king has been wounded. The grail itself is not a cup. It's not a dish. It's nothing like that. It's a stone. And Parseval is part of a long kind of line of, it's very holy blood and holy grail. So he's, the, his ancestors include Vespasian, the Roman emperor. It includes yep. a Trojan prince. And he in turn is the father of Lohengrin who will be the hero of a Wagner opera, and a long line of keepers of the grail. So in other words, a sacred bloodline.
0: So it's Eschenbach's version that Wagner is really...
1: Yes, so that's what Wagner draws on. Yeah, Yeah. So these are the two key accounts. There are various other accounts as well, which add further ingredients. So one of them, for instance, adds the detail that the lance is... And this is basically what becomes canonical, except in uh, von Eschenbach's version that the lance is the spear of a Roman soldier called Longinus who used it to stab the the side of Christ. So you have the grail, which is gathering the blood of Christ and was used at the last supper and you have the spear. So it's all about the passion of Christ. Yeah. You also have a, a very detailed romantic account, which folds in the whole of the round table. So the quest for the grail becomes something that's not just exclusive to Percival, but all the knights of the round table And in this version, the person who wins it is not Percival, but the knight that you mentioned earlier, Dominic, Galahad. And Galahad is the son of Sir Lancelot, the best of Arthur's knights and the girl who keeps the grail. So you remember in Chrétien's account, it's a girl who carries the grail. Lancelot in this sleeps with her and has this son, Galahad, who is a kind of, who is perfect. And what you have in this romance, Lancelot does not get the grail because of his affair with Guinevere. So he's been having an affair with Guinevere, the the wife of King Arthur, for 24 years. And so he approaches where the grail is and gets hit by a kind of great fiery blast and is knocked out for 24 days. One day for for each of the year that that he's been having an affair with, uh, with, with Guinevere. And basically, Galahad wins it because he has the right lineage to win it. He is descended from the Grail Keeper. He's descended from, uh, Lancelot, who is Arthur's best knight. So he's the fusion of the best of the chivalric and the kind of the holiness that is required for a, a keeper of the Grail. And so when he comes to, uh, to Camelot, his approach is signaled by all kinds of supernatural occurrences. So uh, an inscription appears by magic on the, on the round table. There's this empty seat, the siege perilous, where only the best knight can sit or he will be kind of consumed and vanish into hell galahad sits there and and it's all fine um a sword in a stone floats down the river miraculously and there's kind of lettering on it says only the best knight who is destined to win the grail can draw it galahad draws it and and so it becomes apparent and so this is the stuff that then feeds into the version of the arthurian legends that's best known to english speakers valerie's account and basically that's the count that that has passed into the kind of
0: just to be clear you can't really have both percival and galahad can you it's kind of either or is that right
1: yeah, pretty much. So, so Parsifal is in this account is with another knight called Bors, both of whom are kings um, in this account. They, they do end up kind of attaining the grail, but it is Galahad who has a particular experience of the grail that perhaps we could come to in the second half, because the, um, the spin that is given on what exactly it means for Galahad to win the grail is quite an important part, I think, in explaining what is going on here.
0: Excellent. Well, I mean, to, to, to put it in simple terms, the next line of your notes, Tom, reads, WTF is going on. And, um, <laughs> yeah. and that is what we will explore in the in the second half of this episode. Uh, see you after the break. Welcome back to The Rest is History. If you've seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you will remember that when they finally get to, it's basically Petra, isn't it? It's Petra and Jordan. And uh, the adventurers f- think they've got the grail. But then there's a remarkable twist at the end, Tom, which nobody could possibly have anticipated. Now, no doubt you've got all kinds of remarkable twists in store, but you were going to explain exactly what is going on. Because when I hear all this stuff about lances, piercings, cups, I mean, my mind only works one way. You think fertility symbols. I do, Tom. <laughs> I, it amazes amaze you to know that. But... You've got all kinds of stuff because I've seen your notes, so I know there's all kinds of weird and wonderful things going on in the second half of this episode. We tend to think of this now in uniquely in kind of Freudian, Jungian terms,
1: don't we? Well, I think it's clear that the fascination that the Grail has held for people over the course of the, the 20th and 21st centuries is fundamentally wrapped up in the sense of it being mysterious. I mean, the, the, the sense that there is there is a kind of truth there, a secret there, that if only you can grasp it, then you'll understand it. And it's kind of written into the fabric of the romances itself. I mean, they talk about you know the secrets of the grail. You have to win it. And so I think that there've been kind of three really influential theories that have grown up over the past century or so to explain it. And one is absolutely the one that you were alluding to, the idea that it's a kind of which Jung pushes himself, the idea that it's a kind of a universal symbol, a key to all the mythologies. Uh, did did you ever read um Joseph Campbell's books on mythology? Yeah. He,
0: so Joseph Campbell, his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, inspired George Lucas, who was the guy who came up with the with the idea of Indiana Jones
1: and for the Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. So he wrote um a four volume history of mythology and his last one was called, I think, creative mythology. And 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 Eschenbach's Parseval was kind of central to that, this idea of the grail as a symbol that explains and symbolizes everything about the relationship of humanity to the kind of the supernatural, the mythological realms. But the problem with that, of course, is that I think if you are trying to explain it in historical terms, because that explains everything, it explains nothing. So, I mean, it might work in terms of psychology, but I don't think it works as historical explanation the other very popular theory that we have explored in a previous episode is the one that is best exemplified by the holy blood and the holy grail and then by dan brown the da vinci code the idea of the holy grail as a, a secret perhaps it's the bloodline of christ so the song the holy grail becomes the song that the royal bloodline yeah and again, in our in our episode on um, the Da Vinci Code, we explored the inadequacies of that as a historical explanation for what the Grail might have been. And then we come back to this idea that, that I mentioned at the start of the program, the one that so excited T.S. Eliot, Jesse Weston's idea, that it's all about fertility rituals derived from paganism. And specifically, of course, because these are Celtic traditions, Celtic stories, Arthur is a, is a figure from pre-Anglo-Saxon Britain. The mythology, presumably, therefore, if this theory is correct, must be Welsh. And there's a guy, scholar R.S. Loomis, um, in the mid 20th century, who particularly argued that that the Grail is um, a Christianization of Welsh mythology. And he focuses particularly on this figure called Bran the Blessed, um, who is kind of involved with a cauldron that is able to bring the dead back to life. And so, this idea that perhaps the Grail is a cauldron. There's also the idea that Bran himself loses his head. It speaks prophecy. It ends up being buried where the Tower of London is built. And uh, perhaps the brand's head is in some way the holy grail. So all this kind of stuff is being teased. Now, there are, there are kind of problems with this, namely that the idea, so the Jesse Western idea that the wasteland is kind of central to the myth. The reason that I emphasized that in Parsifal, in Chrétien de Troyes telling of it, that there's no supernatural link between the Fisher King and the wastelands around him. That it's simply the result of kind of depredations following on from the fact that he can't defend his lands. The idea that there is a supernatural link is medieval, but it's very late. So, in other words, if that tradition is coming from pagan sources, you would expect it to be the other way around. It isn't. So that kind of I think undermines that theory. The other problem with so all the arguments, uh, Loomis's argument that this is Bran the Blessed and his cauldron and his head or whatever, is firstly that the Grail initially. Is is you know, it's not a, a a cup, certainly not a cauldron, it's a platter. And also, so far as we know, there is no translation of the legends of Bran into French in the Middle Ages. You persuaded me it's not Welsh. It seems very un- implausible to me. So but if it's not from Let me just say, on the on the on the topic of the Last Crusade, there was also in the fifties there was a theory that it came from Iran. Oh, interesting again, for absolutely nonsensical reasons. That okay. I mean, I don't want to offend Ali Ansari, who would, of course, would be very keen to know that the Holy Grail is actually Iranian. But that, that perhaps might tie it in with the idea that, that it came from Petra or from Turkey or wherever uh, that you get in the Holy Grail. Perhaps that's where they got the idea. you get about. in the Last
0: Crusade. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, okay, where does it come from then?
1: Or, or does to try? He doesn't just dream it up. I think he does. <laughs> oh, crikey. <laughs> I mean, I think it's that simple. And I think that, that what is interesting is that all these stories, all these motifs, the Fisher King, the Lance, the Holy Grail, Joseph of all of it basically comes in a, essentially a kind of 50, 60 year period from the 1180s through to the, you know, first decades of, of, of the 13th century. And I think therefore that the origins of the Grail do not lie in the mists of prehistory or in human psychology. They lie in a very, very specific and massively tumultuous period of medieval latin history and that period dominic is a period that we have already done various episodes on namely the period of the albigensian crusade it's the age of, of innocent the third the great pope so this is the kind of the papacy latin Christendom at its kind of militant peak and so just to go through what is happening at this period and to link it to Certainly some of the authors of these grail romances. As I said, you've got the Albigensian crusade, this crusade against heretics in the south of France that is very, very bloody. So the Cathars, as they're called. The Cathars, as they're called. And the people who take the kind of the ideological lead in this are the Cistercians. So a kind of order of monks who are the, the shock troops in the war against these supposed heretics in the south of France. And one of the sequels to, to Chrétien is, is a, a former poet a former enthusiast for chivalry called Elinor. He becomes a Cistercian monk and he actually goes the south of France and he preaches against the Albigensians. So that's the context for his romance. Yeah, 1204, you have the sack of Constantinople. So yeah. um, this terrible event when the capital of, of the, the Roman empire in the East is is destroyed by the crusaders. And Robert de Borah, who we mentioned in the first half, he's the guy who comes up with the idea of, of the grail being the, um, the, the, the cup of christ he was in the service of a lord who actually took part in the sack right you have the reconquista in spain going on uh, yeah. and according to wolfram von eschenbach who wrote pasifal he says that he got the story from a guy who found it uh written in arabic in toledo which is the kind of the great city where people are finding manuscripts of aristotle and so on written in arabic and translating it
0: so presumably he doesn't really he says that because it makes it seem exotic and exciting and glamorous
1: and dangerous and so on so in other words the grail romances are i think patently influenced by what is going on in the broader world and basically what you have is this is a period where a kind of long drawn out century and a half process of revolution is coming to its climax and this is a revolution that that began back in the 11th century when Radicals seize control of the commanding heights of the Roman church and they uh, embark on this great project to separate out the dimension of the church, the dimension of the holy from the kind of what they call the dimension of the cyculum, the dimension of the mortal, the dimension of things that are born and die that we come to call the secular. Right. And the church defines itself as being over and above this. It has divorced itself from that. So this is the period when priests, for instance, have to commit themselves to celibacy. And the reason they have to commit themselves to celibacy is that this is, enables them to preside over the great mystery that lies at the heart of the claim of the Roman church to hold the keys to heaven, which is the ritual of the Eucharist. So this is taking taking mass, basically. It's taking the mass. And the claim is that taking the the, the the host, the wafer, the bread, that this is literally the body of Christ, and that drinking... The wine from the, the chalice, from the cup. This is literally the blood of Christ, thanks to a process called transubstantiation. And this is kind of key to the claim that the church has to embody a holiness so awesome, so profound that it, it, it licenses them to establish the church as something sovereign and supreme over all the kind of various secular states of Europe. Right. And as we discussed in our episode on the Albigensians, there are people who, you know, who are not in the, the kind of the cutting edge centers of Latin Europe in this time, whether it's Rome, whether it's the great universities of, of Bologna and Paris and Oxford, but people out in the sticks, out in the provinces who really resent that. And the Albigensians are kind of emblematic of that. And this is why in exactly the period that the Grail romances are being written, the Albigensians are being targeted basically for kind of annihilation. Yeah. So. The church, if it's going to embark on these crusades, whether it's directed against heretics within the fabric of Christendom, whether it's the Muslims in Spain, whether it's uh, schismatic Christians in Constantinople, they can't do this on their own. They need warriors. They need soldiers to do it for them. And this is where knights come in. Because the paradox is that even as the church is claiming to have emancipated itself from of the earthly demands, the earthly compromises of fallen humanity, it still needs warriors to defend it, and so therefore the question of what in in what way can being a warrior, being a knight, being a chevalier, someone who rides around on a horse with swords and shields and lances, in what way can they be integrated into this kind of awesome vision of christendom?
0: So what they need is stories, they need an ideology or reconcile the military and the, and the religious, right? I think
1: the ideology comes first because what you see in the, the two centuries that precede the emergence of the, the grail stories is a series of attempts on the part of the church to sacralize knighthood. So the earliest of these is something called the peace of God, where you have all these chevaliers, all these knights who are busy attacking each other, attacking monasteries, attacking churches. And the churches bring out holy relics from, the, from, from, you know, from their kind of inner sancta. And the knights are so overwhelmed by the power of this that they kind of swear to hold the peace. They kind of swear to the relics that are paraded through the streets or brought out into fields. And this idea of the peace of God, that the church can entrust knights with a kind of holy duty, then becomes militarized with the idea of crusades, which is born at the end of the the 11th century. Uh, and these crusades kind of obviously roll out throughout the, the century that follows and are launched both against Constantinople and against the Muslims and yeah. against the Albigensians. But you also have this emergent idea that comes to be known as chivalry, this idea that a knight should properly follow Christian mission. So that's the bit, you know, the, the, the um, hermit who talks to Percival saying you must look after young girls, after women, after orphans, um, after widows and so on that's where that is coming on and that feeds into the romances that Chrétien tells and this again i think is why they are so massively influential so popular is that because these are being written in french therefore they are appealing not to to, to clerics not to scholars but to the kind of people who would gather in a knight's hall and the kind of the tensions the complexities the ambiguities that hedge figures like lancelot and gawain and indeed percival around these are stories that directly appeal to knights who are trying to think, I want to be a brave knight, I want to fight, but I want to be a good Christian as well. Yeah. What does it mean to be a Christian knight? So why, therefore, why then
0: the Greer? Why the, the spear with the blood? Why the Fisher King? Why,
1: why all those details? Why those details specifically? Right. So it is only the priests who can approach the Eucharist. This is their awesome power. This is why they have sworn themselves to celibacy. Knights can't do that. But what Chrétien does in a very, very bold manoeuvre is to construct a kind of a myth in which knights are shown doing exactly that. Percival goes to the castle of the grail and he beholds the spear and he beholds the cup. And we're not told in in Chrétien's account that this is the spear that pierced the side of Christ, or that the Grail is the cup that gathered the cup of of the blood of Christ. But it's it's pretty evident from the speed with which people come to understand that that's what it is. That that probably was his intention. That that probably was the the plot twist that he was building up to. And so, aside from von Eschenbach's Parsifal, in which it's a stone, pretty much all the other Grail accounts are absolutely making play with these symbols of the passion the grail the spear dripping with with blood and in these romances the fisher king is able to stay alive for despite his wound for you know decades centuries millennia because he is consuming a host this is what keeps him alive the body of christ right. and this similar miracles are reported in this period so you have, uh, you know, there's a girl who's supposed to have lived for 40 years on nothing but, but the host, which is said to have been brought to her by a dove every Friday and then given to her by a priest every Sunday. Um, there's a, a woman who lives only on the host that she gets at communion for 30 years. So this is an idea that is simultaneously pretty heretical, the idea that knights can approach the body and blood of Christ without priests to mediate it but it's also very orthodox because it's upholding the mystery that lies at the heart of the claims of the Latin church to its you know to its supremacy and this is basically one of the things that the albigensians are being targeted against
0: but this is the idea at the heart of Christianity isn't it that you have the body and blood of Christ and you will get eternal life in essence that's what the
1: christian promise is yeah but the idea that it is literally the body and blood of Christ is something that's been kind of building up over several centuries, but it gets weaponized in this kind of particularly revolutionary period of the 11th century through the 12th century into the early 13th century. So the period that culminates in all these various crusades and in the grail stories kind of right. emerging. So I I think essentially that is what is going on, that the grail romance, romances, they're dangerous. They are kind of faintly treading on the toes of, of the clerical establishment. And that I think is why basically the church never mentions them i mean it preserves a very frosty silence about them but at the same time it tolerates them because they recognize that it is embodying a kind of very militant understanding of transubstantiation of this idea that the body and the blood of christ is incredibly that is dispensed by the priests is indeed you know the, the mystery of mysteries the kind of the profoundest thing that you could possibly have and it's that that gives the grail its sense of holiness and it's that 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 underpins the whole plot of, of the last crusade. Yeah. You know, famously the, the knight who guards the grail in the, the last crusade, you have to choose which grail do you drink from? Which cup do you go for? Someone chooses poorly. Someone chooses wisely. And yeah. basically, you know, to put, to revert back to early 13th century terms from the perspective of, of the establishment of the Latin church, the Albigensians, the Saracens, the schismatic Christians in Constantinople are choosing poorly. The devout, those who, who follow the teachings of the Latin church, are choosing wisely. And in that sense, the Grail knights are choosing wisely.
0: From the church's point of view, even if this does verge on heresy, surely the, the point is that basically the Grail story is an excellent recruiting tool. So all of these chivalric romances are fantastic in recruiting people to be knights, to fight for Christendom, to fight for in the name of the papacy, all of that sort of stuff. That, that's
1: what they're after, right? Yeah. And so I think that that's why Galahad gets introduced and replaces Percival. Because to begin with, and this is why Percival has been so influential, not just in the Middle Ages, but right the way through the the, the 19th, 20th and 21st centuries, it does have the quality of a dream. You see the, the action through the eyes of Percival, these strange haunting images. I mean, they're so powerful. They live so vividly in the imagination. But with the introduction of Galahad, it becomes much more kind of programmatic. So, um, Galahad is a mountain that is name checked in the Song of Songs, very important to the Cistercians, this, you know, these, these monks who are taking the lead in the, the war against heresy. Um, and they say that, that, you know, this mountain, Galahad is the head of the church. So there's a kind of very self conscious, kind of almost allegorical role that is being played by Galahad that I think makes those stories less influential, less effective, actually.
0: Well, they're less strange, aren't
1: they? Although, There is a kind of strangeness in the climax of Galahad's vision of the grail when he attains it, because basically what Galahad has is what Dante also gets in the Divine Comedy, which is what's called the beatific vision, the vision of the beatus, the the, the happiness, the joy that the Christian soul after death has when beholding the face of God. You're not supposed to get it in this life, but Mm. Galahad does get it. And what's amazing is the description of of what of of how this beatific vision is framed in the in the romance. So this is from the Quest of the Holy Grail, which kind of describes Galahad's winning of the Grail. And Galahad, as he sees the as he has the beatific vision, the revelation of the Grail, the face of God. For now I see openly what tongue cannot describe nor heart conceive. Here I see the beginning of great daring and the prime cause of prowess. Here I see the marvel of all other marvels. And it's being couched in knightly terms. You know, these are not terms that, um, you know, Thomas Aquinas or other great theologians would, would, would go for. He's describing it as being brilliant. The beatific vision is all about being a great knight, going on adventures, going on quests. But you can see why I think this is a problem for Protestants. And so you said that the people have been continuously fascinated for the grail. Actually, they haven't been. The moment the Reformation comes, interest in the Grail kind of stops. Because it's seen as superstitious? Absolutely. Transubstantiation. I mean, this is, the idea of whether the the wine and the bread at communion are literally the, the blood and the body of Christ is fundamental to the Reformation. Protestants say it isn't. And so I think that they kind of instinctively recognize that the Grail rituals, the Grail romances are very much a product of, of the Catholic Middle Ages. And that's why they kind of drop it like, like a hot plate. And I, But I think it also explains why when the Grail romances get rediscovered in the 19th century and into the 20th century, there's a sense that you've got the hardware there, but the the software has been erased. And so all the kind of theories, whether it's the Jungian theories, the idea that it's kind of secret bloodlines or that it's uh, pagan myths that have been Christianized, this is an attempt to kind of rewrite software that can power the hardware, if that makes sense.
0: Right. So the, yes, so we like the story, but we've lost sight of actually the, the essence, the
1: meaning. Yeah, we've got all these amazing images with these kind of adventures, but we can't quite get a handle on it. We want to know what the secret of the grail is. I mean, actually, the secret of the grail is there. It's written very, very obviously in the history of the late 12th and early 13th centuries. But because we're not familiar with that anymore, we look for, for other secrets, other ways of explaining it.
0: Right. Yes. Okay. That makes complete sense to me. And also, Tom, that explains why, to my mind, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade is the weakest of the original trilogy. Because actually, the grail is just a pure MacGuffin.
1: It doesn't quite have the... It's a very Christian symbol, which is why it's my favorite. No, 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 no.
0: (laughs) It's not as powerful as the Ark of the Covenant, which is really weird. And the ending of that film, for those people who've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, and um, when you first see it, if you're a child, comes as a great shock and is really charged with this kind of supernatural power. Of course, Temple of Doom, as everybody knows, is the best of the f- three films. So on the grail, Tom, one place you haven't mentioned at all, finally, just as we uh, come to an end, we're getting towards midsummer, well, late summer, Glastonbury. It's not at Glastonbury? Where does that
1: idea come from? It's not at Glastonbury, and that's never really part of, of the Glastonbury myth. The, um, the abbots of Glastonbury do very late in the 15th century, so just after Mallory has written his his accounts of the Arthurian myths, they do start saying that the Holy Grail was brought to Glastonbury, but it's a bit late because of course, 30 years later, the Abbey gets closed down and uh, there's no place in Thomas Cromwell's world for no. <laughs> holy thorns and supernatural chalices or any of that stuff.
0: All right. Well, listen, so you've rather debunked the Holy Grail, which is kind of a shame.
1: I don't think I have debunked it. I've placed it in the context of the great mystery that lay at the heart of medieval Christendom.
0: Yeah, but I think a lot of people are looking for lost bloodlines, aren't they, and aliens and Atlantis and things. Tough. Sorry. All right. Well, on that bombshell, Tom, that was really, really fascinating. You've inspired me to go back and listen to uh, Wagner's Parsifal, which is a terrifying prospect for the other members of my household. Who knew that two podcasts about Indiana Jones would end on such a high highbrow note? And on that note, we will say goodbye.
1: Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest Is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's RestIsHistoryPod.com Hi, Rest Is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two part in depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, There are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest Is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoiled dog in history, maybe.